Good to see everybody. Can uh, I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. As we uh, come to the fifth and final chapter of Peter's first epistle, it contains a, uh, a mixture of greetings and exhortations. Now, I fully intended to finish 1 Peter tonight, but you know your pastor. I get to study and, and uh, a couple of things caught my attention. So I'd like to focus on them tonight and finish this epistle next week. So verse 1, the first thing I want you to key in on is the word elders. The elders who are among you, Peter said, I exhort. Let me stop there. The word elders is the Greek word presbuteroi. That's the plural of presbuteros. Of course, we get the English word presbytery and Presbyterian from that Greek word. A Presbyterian church is an elder-run church. Hold on to that. We'll come back to it in a second. The word elder in the New Testament can be used of just an older person. Uh, we see this in the Old Testament quite a bit, but um, in the New Testament it could refer, there are some places like I think 1 Timothy 5.1, where it could be referring to just an older person. But most of the time, when you see the word elder in the New Testament, it describes a man recognized in a local church as a, a person who exercises pastoral care over the people of God. So he's a, an elder in the sense he's a uh, spiritual leader in the church. Now, the Presbyterian form of government differs from our form of government. Let me explain. Uh, there are basically three forms of government we see today in local churches. I won't spend much time on this at all, just to give you a working knowledge. First of all is the Presbyterian form of church government. This is a form of church government where the church is run by a group of elders. So it's an elder board, and they run the church. Sometimes the pastor himself is on the board. He is one of the elders. Uh, sometimes he's not. There's a lot of churches who are run by elders who simply hire a pastor and he remains off the board. Uh, so they are controlling the church. He becomes a hireling. He doesn't really have any control. I don't feel that's biblical. Like, I'm not saying it, it can't work. I just don't, If you're going to have an elder-run church, in my mind, the pastor has got to be on the board too. Isn't he? He's an elder as well. But in some churches, it just doesn't work that way. So you see, he becomes a hireling. And the second form of church government is what is called the Episcopalian form of government. It's called it because of the Greek word episkopos, which we see in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, translated bishop. The Greek word means overseer, all right, overseer. And uh, this is a form of church government where uh, there is a, a, a head pastor, a senior pastor, as we would call him, who is ultimately in control of the church. Uh, and has under him a group of elders, these would be assistant pastors, uh, who assist him in making decisions and shepherding the people of God. But uh, really, uh, in most cases, he makes the final decision. This form of church government works very much like a marriage. In a marriage, you have a husband and a wife. Both are equal in the eyes of God, but God has placed the husband in authority. The wife is there to assist her husband. They both pray about decisions. They both have input. But the final decision is up to him. He's the leader of his family. Same is true with this form of church government. Uh, this is where the senior pastor is in control. And uh, kind of like Moses. Remember in the Old Testament? And uh, Moses tried to do everything himself. Remember how people were waiting from morning till evening. Big line. Uh, there in the wilderness as God led them out of Egypt. And uh, Moses was trying to hear all these disputes, all these civil court cases, basically. He's the only judge in the whole uh, nation. And his father-in-law, Jethro, said uh, one time, watching this, said, you know, Mo, this isn't good. You know, this is, you're going to burn out, man. You, you have to choose men who are, you know, filled with the Spirit to assist you. And so he chose 70 elders and uh these were now older gentlemen this is what i'm saying sometimes the word just means older gentlemen but they, but they became leaders and uh and some of them were over 10 some over 50s hundreds and thousands but they assisted moses okay they were under him they helped him 
And I would imagine that they probably all prayed together, okay? But, but this is how this form of church government works. I had a Calvary pastor call me one time uh, from the area and uh, was talking to me about his, his uh, board of uh, elders. And um, he said to me that he wanted to show a DVD series, a spiritual series on something with regard to Christian life and whatever it might be. And, but his board voted it down. Asked me, what did I think about that? I said, I think your board has too much power. You're the spiritual leader of the church. If you feel God's led you to show a Christian biblical DVD series because it's going to enrich the saints, that's your call. Okay, that's your call. They can help you pray about it if you're not sure, but they can't override you. That's not uh, how that works. And finally, the third form of church government is a congregational form of government. This was very popular in the early days of our uh, nation's history because, you know, somebody came over from England where they had an authoritarian church where the, uh, the king was also the head of the Anglican church. And uh, it, was, it was very you know, much, nobody had any input that the king was supreme in matters of civil government and then now the church. So when they came over to America to establish this country, uh, a country uh, for the pe- by the people, for the people, you know, uh, democracy was very big. So congregational churches were everywhere. In a congregational church, um, the people are really uh, in control in the sense that they vote on everything. And the church is run by the people in the pews who vote on these things. And um, they, uh, you know, vote on everything from hiring and even firing pastors and how money is spent. And really the pastor is also kind of a hireling in this form of church government. It's a democratic form of government. And I say, well, a church run by the people. You say, well, what's wrong with that? That sounds good. It might be good for a nation. It's a lousy way to run a church. It's not biblical, first of all, because now you get the sheep leading the shepherd. Why is this a bad way to run a church you know, it sounds good, democratic, everyone likes that, voting, that's good, right? It's what America's all about, we vote. We all have equal power. Typically, guys, in any church, now I'm just speaking in typical terms, you have 10% of the church, which is the core. These are mature, spirit-filled, on-fire Christians. Then you have about 30% who are kind of getting warmed up. They're starting to, wow, they're kind of getting going, you know, and they're kind of hepped up in the Word, and they're going to Bible studies, and they're wanting to be discipled, and they're becoming on fire. They're moving towards the core. But then you have roughly 60% of the church, which is made up of new believers and unbelievers. If you let the congregation run the church, the least spiritual people in the church are actually controlling it. And that's why it's a terrible, sounds good, looks good on paper. Uh, It's just God knows that's not the way a church should be run. That's not what he has laid out in his word. And you say, well, what does the word say about church government? It gets a little sticky because there are good brothers in the ministry who wholeheartedly believe in the Presbyterian style of church government. They believe there's no such thing as a senior pastor who is the head guy uh, they have a board of elders, and they're all equal. They all pray. They all vote. Fine. That could work fine. A congregational church could work fine if most of the people are spiritually minded and are walking in the Spirit. Any, any form of church government can work well if you have the right-hearted people, okay? But typically, it doesn't work out so well for a congregational church. What do I hold to? I, I hold to the Episcopalian form of church government. Not that I'm Episcopalian. It doesn't mean that. Okay, the Episcopalian Church is called that because they have a senior pastor or a head uh, pastor that kind of uh, runs the church and then below him assistants that help and so on. Why do I hold to this view of church uh, government? Because every institution that God has ordained, I'm talking about human government, I'm talking about uh, marriage, I'm talking about the church. Every one of those functions under the uh, principle of uh, authority and submission. But not just that. In every institution that God has ordained, we always see God putting one person 
one person at the top who ultimately is responsible to run whatever he's over. In the Old Testament, the government that God gave to Israel had a king, all right? A king who was the ultimate, you know, he had guys under him that would assist him and no doubt keep him accountable. Joab spoke into David's life at one point and many times. Others spoke into king's lives to to encourage them to, you know, not make a hasty decision or this was not really a biblical way to go. We need to rethink this. But, but it always came down to one person, like a king in the Old Testament for government. Then you have, uh, in marriage, of course, again, we just said, uh, you have a husband and wife, both are equal in the eyes of God, Genesis, uh, Galatians 3, uh, I think 27 and 8 or 9 talk about that. But that doesn't mean because you have two people that are equal that God hasn't put one in authority over the other. Uh, and that's what marriage is all about. The husband has been given the responsibility by God to be the ultimate leader. And again, that doesn't mean the wife is inferior. That doesn't mean the wife uh, doesn't have access or input uh, into decision-making. Good heavens, think of the Trinity itself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three absolutely equal. And yet Jesus said that he, he was under the Father's authority and the Holy Spirit is under the Father and the Son's authority. So even in the, the Trinity, you have authority and submission, even though, of course, they're all God. They're all equal. This is the point I'm, I'm making. And uh, that also applies to the church, I believe. Bringing that format into the church now, I believe that God has raised up a, a man, a, a senior pastor, a head shepherd. And then under him, under shepherds come alongside of him to help. And I believe this was the model for the early church. All right, This Episcopalian uh, one man, a shepherd, form of church government. Now, years ago, I had a gentleman who I was talking about this with uh, immediately called me on it and said, well, what about uh, Ephesus? It says right in the book of Ephesus, to the elders of the church of Ephesus. Doesn't that prove that the church is run by elders? I said, it looks that way, doesn't it? Quick glance, yeah, it looks that way. Here's the thing. The city of Ephesus was 500,000 people. First century. The church didn't start meeting in formal church buildings until the 4th century. There was a lot of folks out of 500,000 people. There were no doubt several thousand that were Christians. So where'd they go to church? They, they didn't meet in church buildings yet. Well, they had to meet in houses. The house church is where they met, okay? And over each house church was an elder, uh, an episcopos, an overseer. And that person oversaw that house church, but together they were all the church of Ephesus run by elders. But again, these were senior pastors, we'll say in our vernacular, senior pastors, and um, they had assistants that uh, helped them. We see this, though, I believe, you talk about the church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. Remember how at one point, they called uh, the first church council in Acts 15, you have to turn there, but uh, what was going on was there were these Judaizers, these Pharisees that had professed faith in Christ, called themselves Christians, but whenever Paul would preach the gospel of grace, remember, his ministry was primarily to the Gentiles. So he would come into an area and preach the gospel of grace, and a bunch of Gentiles would get saved, and then he, he started church, then he'd move on. And when he was gone, these Judaizers would come in, and they would attack Paul. His credentials, and uh, Paul wasn't one of the 12. He's not an apostle. He wasn't one of the 12. Uh, what do you listen to him for? And besides, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to be circumcised first, you guys. You've got to keep the law of Moses. You've got to basically become a Jew first, and then you can believe in Christ and be a Christian. This was a hot uh, issue in the first century church. And finally, Paul and Barnabas had had enough. He said, look, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to talk to the uh, apostles and get this, uh, you know, Peter and John and those guys. We're going to get this hammered out once and for all. So in Acts 15, they had this council, right? And uh, Peter presents some testimony about how God was saving Gentiles without them becoming 
Jews and Paul and Barnabas stood up and, and gave testimony about the same thing, how God was moving mightily among the Gentiles. They were getting saved like crazy, and not one of them had been circumcised and kept the law of Moses and so on. And finally, we read in Acts 15, verse 19, where James stands up. This would be the James who wrote the epistle of James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what he said in Acts 15, verse 19. Therefore, I judge, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. In the Greek, guys, this is an authoritative judgment or decree from a person who is in charge. James and not Peter is presiding over this council. Hang on to that. We'll come back to it. And he, James, was the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Now, as the senior pastor of this church, just so you don't get worried, I don't have absolute authority to do whatever I want to do. Our Constitution has built into it safeguards. I can be removed, but I want to be protected, and I don't worry about my guys. But there have been Calvaries where the elders, the assistant pastors, have risen up and tried to oust the senior pastor. For no good reason. Because of that, the way we've designed our Constitution, and we've borrowed this from other Calvaries who have done the same thing, is if I am doing it, teaching false doctrine, if it's come to light that I have been maybe having an affair or taking money from the church, my guys can call for a tribunal. It's in our Constitution, but it has to be a tribunal of the senior pastors, Calvary guys, in the area. And then they sit, hear the evidence, and if it's true, if they come to the conclusion this is true, I've been doing one of these things, they can toss me. They can take me out, okay? That protects the pastor from uh, a group of elders that are on a power trip, but also uh, the congregation is protected because, you know, there have been, I deal with Calvary Chapel, so this is what I know, um, there was one Calvary in Colorado uh, that had a, a good man there, uh, you know, but he, he moved on. And another guy came in and rewrote the Constitution where he couldn't be removed for any reason, basically. Now, he was untouchable. So the congregation had no protection uh, against this guy who was kind of off and uh, became a dictator, really. And so people just left. So I want you to understand it. Church government, just so you have a working knowledge of what we do, okay? That was the first issue I wanted to talk about tonight. I wanted to address uh, from our text. The second issue uh, is even, and we'll spend the rest of our time this evening on this issue. The second issue is even more important and pertains to Peter himself. Peter himself. Notice what Peter says again in verse 1. He said, the elders who are among you, I exhort, listen, I who am a fellow elder. Now look, if Jesus had really made Peter the first pope, we would have expected him to start out this chapter by saying something like this. The elders who are among you, I exhort as the supreme pontiff and leader of the church. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church claims that Jesus appointed Peter to be the first pope. Turn to Matthew 16. Let me say this. We won't study Matthew 16 uh, in detail on this subject. I'm only going to hit a couple of points that I want to bring out. If you really want to get into this subject in more detail, you can go online and listen to our uh, study from Matthew 16. We did on Sunday morning. Did Jesus really make Peter the first pope? Uh, But here, I want you to look at Matthew 16. Let's pick it up in verse 13. So when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Well, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar means son of. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And so the Roman Catholic Church believes and teaches that when Jesus said to Peter, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, the Catholic Church teaches that at this point right here, Jesus uh, was officially appointing Peter as the first pope and would go on to build his holy Roman Catholic Church on Peter. Further, they claim that from Peter, an unbroken succession of bishops, the bishops of Rome, became the popes and the leaders of the Christian church down through the centuries until the present day. An unbroken succession. Hold on to that thought. Now, evangelicals contend, like myself, that Jesus would have never built his church on a fallible man, especially one like Peter. And we all love Peter. Peter was a great guy. I'm not putting Peter down. But here was a man who was about to deny the Lord three times. Okay, I don't believe Jesus Christ built his church on a man. Evangelicals, some claim that the rock that Jesus was going to build his church on was himself. Jesus talked about himself. I'm the rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church. Yes, I, yeah, I agree with that. But, but even more specifically, when Jesus said, or you know, other evangelicals, and I, I really hold to this one primarily, although the, that other one is, yes, I agree with that. But uh, other evangelicals say that the rock that Jesus was going to build his church upon was the declaration of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why is this so important? Why did I feel that we need to spend most of our time this evening touching on it? Why is this such an important subject? Because if the Roman Catholic Church is correct then it alone, it alone is the only true Christian church. It alone acknowledges Peter as Pope and the entire papacy as being established by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's true, think about this, if that's true, then the Protestant Reformation was a lie. Its leaders, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, others, were heretics, and those who follow the teachings of Protestant leaders, I'm thinking primarily of those that led the Protestant Reformation and now down through the centuries, those that agree with these men, Luther, Calvin, and others, those of us who, who follow the Protestant teaching, which includes Peter is not the Pope, we're going to hell. We're going, we're, we have rejected the true church, the Roman Catholic Church. We have rejected not only Peter, but every pope after him in this unbroken succession of vicars of Christ, whom he himself appointed as the head of his church. If we reject that, we are now doomed to spend eternity in hell. And I have even heard in a debate series with Protestants and Roman Catholics, I heard one man, and he's not alone, he's just repeating Roman Catholic doctrine who said uh, Martin Luther he named Martin Luther specifically but he meant all the reformers these were heretics and anyone who follows their teachings anyone who is not involved in the Roman Catholic Church the true church is going to hell you say well are you sure that's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches on this well this is a direct quote from the Roman Catholic Church's official doctrinal i got this right off of their website this is the official position of the roman catholic church let me quote it to you it says if anyone says that the blessed apostle peter was not constituted by christ our lord prince of all the apostles and visible head of all the church militant or that peter directly and immediately received from our lord jesus christ a primacy of honor only, only Peter, and not one of true and proper jurisdiction, let him be 
damned, end quote. In other words, this is official Roman Catholic dogma that if anyone says that Peter was not the first pope and his successors were not popes, they are to be damned to hell. That's what the Roman Catholic Church believes. So all this talk about, come on home. Protestants, come on home. We're all one happy family. Come on. That's malarkey. The Roman Catholic Church still teaches that if you are not a member of the Roman Catholic Church, then there's no salvation for you because salvation is of the church. You know, Christ, they go, oh, yeah, but of the church. All right, that's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches Jesus meant when he said, and I say to you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. They claim that, you know, Jesus made Peter the first pope, the rock or foundation that he, Jesus, built his church upon. In fact, they read verse 18 this way, Catholics do. You, Peter, are a rock, and upon this rock, speaking of Peter, I will build my church. Now, non-Catholics point out several things from the Greek that they, we, believe disprove this interpretation. First of all, in the Greek, Jesus uses two different words for rock. Again, verse 18, you are Peter, Jesus said, but the word he uses is Petros, Petros. You are Peter, Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. The word Petros means a little stone, but the word Petra means a large rock, like a bedrock. Same Greek word was used in Matthew 7, 24 of the parable where Jesus said, and uh, the man who hears my word and does it is like a man who dug deep and built his house on the rock, bedrock. Same Greek word, okay? Number two, in the Greek, Petra is feminine, while Petros is masculine. And so Protestants and evangelicals contend that Jesus couldn't be calling Peter the rock he was going to build his church upon because he uses, first of all, two different Greek words. He calls Peter Petros, and upon this Petra, I'm going to build my church. And then one is feminine, and the other is masculine. So how could they be both talking about Peter? And most evangelicals end right there. Okay, end of, this, end of discussion. Our side wins the debate. Okay? However, when I did this series, I went to Roman Catholic websites. And I listened online to Roman Catholic apologists who answered this question. Look, if we have the truth, it's going to stand against error, right? We don't have to build straw man arguments to easily knock down Look, let's let the Catholics really, let's represent what they believe in truth. Let's, let's hear what they have to say. Because if we're right and this is the truth, it'll stand. We don't have to make these, you know, put words in their mouth to make them sound ridiculous like they're stupid. And we come along and with a few quick blows, boom, we knock it right out and we knock down the straw man. We don't have to do that. It's disingenuous and it's not right. So when we say, well, you know, just Jesus uses two different Greek words for rock. One is feminine, one is masculine. That's the end of the discussion. He can't be talking about Peter being the rock he's going to build his church upon and so on. And Roman Catholics at this point say, oh, hold it, not so fast. They point out that most scholars believe that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, not in Greek. In Aramaic, there is no distinction between the words for Peter and rock. Both words in Aramaic are kepha. Kepha. Therefore, in Aramaic, the verse would read, You are Kepha, and upon this Kepha I will build my church. Which they say now bolsters their contention that Jesus is talking about Peter and not himself as the foundation he would build his church upon. And finally, guys, they point out that although the word Petra in the Greek is feminine, the only reason Jesus didn't use the feminine form for Peter is because Peter is a man's name and therefore he had to use the masculine petros so now the catholics spiked the ball in the end zone do the victory dance they have bested us they have proven that they are right so what about all this well first of all i'm just giving you just a quick i mean you know we could spend weeks looking at all it's not important i don't think and i'll show you why 
first of all, even if Jesus did speak Aramaic, and not, every, not everyone believes he did, he might have used certain words, but the fact that he spoke Aramaic all the time, that's not proven. In fact, I've read some interesting things that claim Jesus actually spoke Hebrew. I don't care if he spoke Swahili. You want to know why? Because when the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew and the other New Testament writers to write down the Word of God, what language did they write the Word of God, New Testament Word of God in? Greek. So when the Holy Spirit moved in the heart of Matthew and Peter and John, he knew, of course, what Jesus was talking about. And so he moved in the hearts of these men to use certain words that best communicated exactly what the Lord Jesus was talking about. Spirit knows the mind of Christ. Of course he does. But let me just say this. One of the reasons that the Holy Spirit wrote the New Testament in Koine Greek is because that was the common language of the day. Uh, that was the language that was, uh, was known by most people. Even if they spoke Latin or Hebrew, because of Greek culture before Romans took over, which was so strong, it remained after Rome became the dominant empire. Greek culture was so powerful that people still spoke Greek. So you had maximum amount of people spoke Greek. God wants to reach maximum amount of people with the gospel and the word of God. You put it in the common tongue so that everyone pretty much can understand what you're saying. That's number one. But also, when I took Greek... The professor made sure he told us the Greek language is very specific. Like we got one word for love, right? Love. But think about it. Uh, I love my wife. I love my kids. I love pizza. I love hot fudge sundaes. Do I love pizza and hot fudge sundaes the same way I love my wife or my kids? Of course not. So the Greeks had different words for love, and this was, this was all the way down the vocabulary. They had all kinds of words for, for different nouns and things and, and all because they were a very specific language. And this allowed God to be very specific so that uh, there was very little room for confusion because of the Greek was so precise. That's one of the reasons I don't buy the argument that there's no distinction between the words Petra and Petros. Well, by the time of Christ, they were used interchangeably. I don't buy it. I heard one commentator say that agape and phileo, the two, two of the words for love in the New Testament, they were used interchangeably. Really? You're going to tell me John 21, where Jesus said to Peter, remember after Jesus rose from the dead, and they went fishing, and they fished all night, caught nothing, and then here's Jesus on the shore, he's got a fire going, he's got fish on the fire, and they come in, you know, and all, and he confronts Peter, who had denied him three times, right? Peter, do you agape me? In English, says, do you love me? Peter says, yeah, I, you know I love you, Lord. But Jesus said, do you agape me? Well, Peter says, you know I phileo you, Lord. Comes down, lesser word. Peter, do you agape me? Well, Lord, you know that I phileo you, I'm fond of you. Why did Peter not say, I agape you, Lord? I, mean, I unconditionally love you with all my heart. Why, why did he say that? Did, did he not love his Lord? Of course he did. Because I think he felt like a hypocrite saying, oh, Lord, I love you unconditionally. He just denied him three times. So Peter didn't feel he had, he could, he could say, Lord, I agape. I think he wanted to. But I just feel like he felt like a hypocrite if he would have done that. You're going to tell me that that exchange, agape and phileo, at that point were just interchangeable words? No, not at all. I don't believe for a second that Jesus said Petra and Petros, and it was all the same deal. He was making a point. He was putting a distinction between Peter and the rock he was going to build his church upon. You say, well, here, let me just say this. The reason Jesus didn't use the Greek word lithos, the, the critics or the Catholics say, look, if Jesus wanted to say, Peter, you're a small stone, but upon this large rock, I would build my church. He could have used the Greek word lithos. That would mean small stone, very simply. Could have eradicated all this confusion. Here's the thing. Our Lord used those two words, Peter, Petros, upon this Petra, I'm going to build my church, because he was employing a play on words. 
That's why he did it. Again, Petros means a little stone. But listen to me, a little stone that is chipped off a large rock. That's the point. Don't miss it. Let me paraphrase. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. You are a little stone chipped off a large rock. And upon this large rock, I will build my church. Why did he put it that way? Because the large rock is Jesus himself, including the declaration by Peter, you are the Christ, son of the living God. I have no problem with that. I believe they both were, okay? Jesus is the large rock that the church was going to be built upon. But Jesus wanted to use a play on words, listen, to communicate that Peter and all of his disciples, including all of us, were connected to him through the new birth, they were an extension of him, like a chip off of a rock is an extension of that rock. We, as his disciples, were extensions. Of, we're his body. We're an extension of him. We came from him. In other words, as Christians, we all have come from him. He is the rock, but we are like little chips off of him as his disciples. There is a connection. There is a correlation. There is relationship. That's the idea. That's why he said what he did, okay? We have a similar saying even in the English concerning the relationship between a son to his father. He is a chip off the old block, we say. That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. Peter, you're a chip off the old block. That block is the rock. It's me. I'm going to build on that rock my church. But all my disciples, little chips, you're all going to be a part of it, all right? Now look, the testimony of the early church fathers. We're trying now, okay, now none of us really knows Greek. We throw around some of these things and we maybe understand, maybe we don't. Let's try to now take this out of the realm of this theological discussion, Matthew 16, okay? And a lot of people, good people debate this, Greek, Petros, Petros. Okay, let's try to just simplify and let's approach the subject biblically just practically okay first of all what about the testimony of the early church fathers now a lot of people revere the early church fathers now be careful they said a lot of good things they were not all correct by any means i, I kind of shy away from the church fathers uh, only because i don't want to spend all that time studying what they have to say well i get the word of god okay i, I mean what they have written uh is beneficial for a lot of things but I'm not going to spend all my time studying, like some people, they spend all their time studying the early church fathers and what they said. Well, these men were fallible. They weren't. Why do you want to spend all your time studying fallible men and what they had to say? Sometimes they were just flat out wrong. It's obvious. Let's stick with the word of God. But okay, what did the early church fathers believe Jesus was saying in Matthew 16, verse 18? This is interesting. This is interesting. In Roman Catholicism, one of the basic tenets of the faith is what the church calls the Tridentine profession of faith. The tri this is a Catholic thing. Roman Catholic Church in Roman Catholicism, one of the basic tenets of the faith is what the church calls the Tridentine profession of faith. The Tridentine profession of faith requires that all Roman Catholic clergy, this is the Catholic Church now mandating this, all Roman Catholic clergy since the days of Pope Pius IV, who ruled or who was Pope from 1559 to 1565, all of these clergy since the days of Pope Pius IV were to vow to interpret Holy Scripture only in accord with the unanimous consent of the early church fathers. So the Catholic Church itself is saying to its clergy, since Pope Pius IV, Everyone who interprets scripture has to do it only in the way that the early church fathers interpreted it. Unanimous consent of the church fathers. Dave Hunt, in his book, A Woman Rides the Beast, says with regard to this, and I quote, How did the so-called church fathers, early church fathers, up to the time of Pope Gregory the Great, who died in 604, so that whole period, up to 604, basically, considered you know, the time of the church fathers, how did they interpret this passage, Matthew 16, 18? Hunt says, It so happens that in this regard, 
they are unanimously in agreement with the Protestant position. Not one of them, not one early church father interprets this passage, Matthew 16, 18, as Catholics are taught to understand it today. To be in agreement with the unanimous teaching of the church fathers, a Catholic would have to reject the dogma that Peter was the first pope, that he was infallible, and that he passed his authority on to successors, end quote. Devout Catholic historian, now this guy's a Catholic historian, Von Dollinger, reminds us of the undeniable facts. He said, and I quote, of all the fathers who interpret this passage, again, Matthew 16, 18, not a single one applies it to the Roman bishops as Peter's successors. How many church fathers have busied themselves with these texts out of Matthew 16, yet not one of them whose commentaries we possess, guys like Origen, Christotham, Hilary, uh, she's older than I thought she was, Augustine, has dropped the faintest hint that the primacy of Rome is the consequence of the commission and promise to Peter. Not one of the early church fathers interpreted Matthew 16, 18 as it was talking about Peter. Not one of them has explained the rock or foundation on which Christ will build his church as the office given to Peter to be transmitted to his successors. But they understood by it either being Christ himself, he's the rock, early church fathers believe it was either talking about Christ himself He's the rock the church was built upon. Or Peter's confession of faith in Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And upon that confession, Jesus is the son of God. He was, Or both, the author said. That's my position. I believe both of those. I believe either one is correct and probably both. Jesus, when he said, upon this Petra, I'm going to build my church, he meant himself. Of course, in that context, Peter had just gotten done saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's not like Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, uh, other earthly leaders that started religious movements. Jesus as God became flesh, dwelt among us, and he himself is unique. He's God, and that's the one his church is going to be built upon, the Lord Jesus Christ. If Roman Catholics guys are to be faithful to the teachings of their own church, then they can't interpret Matthew 16, 18 to mean Peter was the rock Jesus said he would build his church upon. All right, well then, what do the rest of the Gospels in the New Testament teach? Does anything in the New Testament clearly teach uh, that Peter was the first pope? Well, first of all, later in the Gospel record, now this is later than Matthew 16, 18, after Jesus said to Peter, You're, you are Petrus, upon this Petra I'm going to build my church, Roman Catholic Church, so that's when he appointed him pope. But after that record, after that account, we see the disciples arguing among themselves who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Remember? If Jesus had pronounced Peter the first pope, they would never have argued about this, right? I mean, Jesus would have already settled it by pronouncing Peter the greatest because he made him the pope. So apparently the disciples didn't get the memo, okay? You know, that Jesus had made Peter the pope because they're still arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Obviously, they didn't think what Jesus was saying, single out Peter for some papacy thing. Secondly, going back to that church council we talked about earlier, during the first church council in Acts 15, notice that Peter isn't presiding over it as he would have if he was really the Pope. James was in charge. Peter was called to give testimony, that's true, but James made the final judgment concerning the church's position on Gentiles, now being accepted as part of the church. Gentiles that didn't have to be circumcised, didn't have to become Jews first, didn't have to keep the law before they could believe in Christ and be saved. James said, I determine. He made that judgment. He was in charge of that church council. Peter was there. Peter was the first pope. Why wasn't Peter presiding if that's what Jesus had ordained him to. Number three, in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he neglected to mention Pope Peter. Read Romans again. Nowhere in his epistle does he mention Pope Peter, not once, especially not in his final farewell 
where he's talking about greet this one, greet that one. Just pe- folks that Paul had heard of that uh, were in the church in Rome. And um, I think it's like, like 23 or 24, 25 people he mentions. It's loaded the last chapter. And say out of this one, say out of this one. Yeah, yeah, he's rattling off these names. He doesn't mention Peter. Now, Peter was the Pope in Rome. Certainly, Paul would have acknowledged that. Oh, and say hi to Pope Peter for me. What a great leader. Oh, we're all so thrilled. You know. John MacArthur said, and I quote, Paul wrote Romans, Book of Romans, in the year 56 A.D. And he made no mention, no reference to Peter, and had a whole bunch of greetings in chapter 16 and didn't greet Peter. Peter was supposed to be the Pope of Rome by then, when Paul was later imprisoned in Rome, where he wrote four letters in about A.D. 60 to A.D. 62. In that first century, he included everyone who came to him. Paul was in prison in Rome. He mentions everybody that stopped by to visit him. Okay, Peter never came. If he's the bishop of Rome, where is he? Peter was not holy, by the way. In case you were wondering, Jesus said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. Peter wasn't even the head of the Jerusalem church. James was, end quote, as we talked about. How about this foundation stuff? Okay, what, what is this foundation? Well, we basically said it's Jesus. But look, author and commentator William McDonald said in that quote, he said, Ephesians 2.20 teaches that the church is built on Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. It's, uh, it's statement that we are built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets refers not to them, but to the foundation laid in their teachings concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked about that, okay? Christ is spoken of as a rock in 1 Corinthians 10.4. In this connection, Morgan, that would be G. Campbell Morgan, another pastor and commentator, Morgan gives a helpful reminder. Now, this is G. Campbell Morgan. He said, and I quote, Remember, he was talking to Jews. If we trace the figurative use of the word rock through Hebrew scriptures, we find that it is never used symbolically of man, but always of God. So here at Caesarea Philippi, it is not upon Peter that the church is built. Jesus did not trifle with figures of speech. He took up their old Hebrew illustration, rock always, the symbol of deity, and said, upon God himself, Christ, the son of the living God. I will build my church. Peter never spoke of himself as the foundation of the church, end quote. You, you won't find that anywhere in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, which you don't have to turn there, remember how that, um, I forgot where they were, probably in the area of Galatia, but Peter had to come and, uh, you know, and was uh, hanging out with Paul and the Gentile believers and eating with them and having a great old time. Probably, you know, enjoying the barbecue at the church, you know, a, a little spare ribs and things, and just having a great, you know, great time. But then some leaders in the church, Jewish leaders, were sent from James. And when they came, Paul says that Peter feared them. He, he, he not feared in the sense that he was afraid they were going to hurt him, but he reverenced them to the point where he withdrew from the Gentile believers and only ate with the Jewish believers. And Paul said, I had to call him out to his face. So here's Paul taking the Pope to task, okay? I had to stand face to face with Peter and rebuke him for hypocrisy, Paul said. Peter, if we couldn't even be Jews because of the burden of the law, and why do you want to make Gentiles Jews? We couldn't even keep those laws. But it's just interesting that here we see Paul rebuking Peter for hypocrisy. And guys, for that matter, if any apostle acted like the head of the church and therefore a pope, it was Paul. I'm not saying he was the pope. I'm just saying out of the two, if any man acted like the leader of the entire church, maybe like a pope, it was Paul, not Peter. You can count how many times in Paul's epistles he commands he uses commands in the Greek, commands the churches to obey and teach certain things. Paul was the one 
who seemed to have the weight of the church on his shoulders constantly. In fact, we read in 2 Corinthians 11.28, besides the other things, all the sufferings that Paul had gone through for the sake of Christ, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily is my deep concern for all the churches. Paul had all the churches weighing on his, on his shoulders. He loved them. Now, I'm not saying Peter didn't care about the churches. I'm sure he did. But you don't see that kind of language in Peter's epistles. Like Paul, the weight of the church is always on me. I'm always burdened for the church, Christians everywhere. I'm sure Peter was, but he never says it in his epistles. And remember, Paul and not Peter was celibate. Peter had a wife, right? So, you know, we find no place in Paul's epistles where he ever calls Peter the Pope, or even singles him out for special mention, except when it says he rebuked Peter. Instead, Paul places Peter on the same level as the other apostles with himself. Turn to Galatians 2. I know you're digging this and would like me to go all evening. I'm almost done. Okay? But in Galatians 2, starting with verse 6, let me read it to you at the NLT. Paul said, And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching, the other apostles, Okay. By the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favorites. Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. But the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. So, so Paul is saying, Peter and I are co-laborers. He's not exalting Peter. He's not putting Peter down. He's just saying that God called me to be the apostle to the Gentiles, even as he called Peter to be the apostle to the Jews. He's, he doesn't ever exalt Peter. In fact, Peter at one point says, listen to your, our brother Paul. He's so smart. Some of the stuff he says is hard to understand, but, but you know, he, Peter's praising Paul, okay? Uh, but Paul never really exalts Peter. Verse 8, for the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, uh, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to to do. So Paul never exalted Peter in any way to make us think Jesus had made him pope. How did Peter see himself? You know, did he think he was the head of the entire Christian church? Back to our text tonight, 1 Peter 5. Again, verse 1, the elders who are among you, Peter said, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder. Now, Catholics, well, he's just being humble there. Well, yeah, okay, but... He's giving them an official exhortation. So in this spot, it's not unhumble to call yourself by the title the Lord Jesus has given you. But that speaks of authority. It's, it wouldn't have been wrong for Peter to say now, as the Lord Jesus Christ has appointed me head of the entire church, I want you to listen to me now. That would have been proud if that's what the Lord had called him to do. Peter never says that. I, I exhort you who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. We'll cover that next time. But Peter believed that he was one of many other fellow elders. And he exhorted others to shepherd other elders to shepherd the flock of God. And he acknowledged Christ as the chief shepherd. Listen to me. A title he never took upon himself, even as the popes do today. Never called himself chief shepherd. Okay? Uh, let's wind this down. I want to give you a few quotes and we'll close. First one is by James Montgomery Boyce, 
who said, and I quote, how did Peter understand Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 18? Well, in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 8, uh, it provides a definitive answer to that question because there, as in his great sermon before the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts 4, verses 8 to 12, Peter does not suggest even for a moment that he is the rock on which the church is built. Rather, he insists that the foundation stone is actually Jesus Christ. You can go back in chapter 2 and read that again. Peter refers to Jesus as the living stone on which those who believe are like living stones, being built into a spiritual house or temple. Therefore, if others, like Peter himself, are to be called stones in any sense, it is only because they have been built on Jesus, who is the actual foundation, end quote. Well, we're stones because we're chips off the block, right? And finally, guys, concerning the Catholic teaching that Peter began an unbroken line of popes. This is a very big thing. Catholic Church has always maintained Peter was the first pope in a line of unbroken succession of popes throughout the centuries down to the present day. Vicars of Christ, holy fathers, men of the highest moral character and virtue is what the Catholic Church teaches about the popes. This would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic. The millions of Catholics being misled by this lie that Peter was the first pope, but that he started an unbroken chain of succession that led from him down to the present day. Vicars of Christ, these men were the, of the highest moral character and virtue. That is one of the biggest lies ever foisted upon the human race. Pastor John MacArthur said, and I quote, There were big chunks of time when there wasn't even a pope. 4th century, uh, 7th century, uh, 11th century, 13th century, 14th century, and 15th century. There was no pope for periods of time. There's no succession. If you want to study the history of the papacy, it's really a sordid mess. Bloodbaths, mob violence, corruption, sexual perversion, buying and selling of papacy power. It's an unbelievable horror. The claim of some unbroken papacy is absurd. Even Cardinal Ratzinger wrote this. He said, and I quote, For nearly half a century the church was split into two or three obediences that excommunicated one another, so that every Catholic lived under excommunication by one pope or another. In the last analysis, no one could say with certainty which of the contenders had a right had right on his side. So here are, here are popes excommunicating everybody else so that everybody in the church is excommunicated. That's the kind of chaos and conflict even admitted by them. So at one point there were three popes. Sometimes there weren't any. And at one point there were three popes. And each one was excommunicating the other's followers so that everyone in the Catholic Church was excommunicated. He said this is the chaos. This is the joke of what Catholics are taught. It's ridiculous. Dave Hunt said, and I quote, There is no record that Peter was ever bishop of Rome, and therefore no bishop of Rome could possibly be his successor. Irenaeus, bishop of Lyons from 178 to 200 AD, provided a list of the first 12 bishops of Rome. Linus was the first. Peter's name does not appear. Eusebius of Caesarea, the, the father of church history, never mentions Peter as bishop of Rome. He simply says that Peter came to Rome about the end of his days. At the end of his life, he came to Rome, that's where he died, and was crucified there. Paul, in writing his epistle to the Romans, greets many people by name. We've talked about this, but not Peter. That would be a strange omission if Peter had been living in Rome, and especially if he were its bishop. Who the actual bishops of Rome were cannot be known with any certainty at this late date. Even the, the New Catholic Encyclopedia, published by the Catholic University of America, acknowledges this fact. It says, and I quote, but it must be frankly admitted that bias or deficiencies in the sources make it impossible to determine, to determine in certain cases whether the claimants were popes or anti-popes. Were they legitimate popes or false popes? The simple truth is that the Roman Catholic Church itself, with all of its archives, cannot verify an accurate and complete list of the popes. The alleged unbroken line of succession back to Peter is therefore a mere fiction. 
Anyone who takes the time to seriously attempt a verification of its accuracy will conclude that the church has fabricated an official list of popes in order to justify the papacy and its pretensions. Nor was the Bishop of Rome considered to be the Pope of the Universal Church, listen, until about a thousand years after Pentecost, end quote. And I'll give you one more quote from John MacArthur. We'll close. MacArthur gives us a snapshot of the history of the papacy. I thought this was worth sharing with you. This is a snapshot of the entire papacy. Well, most of it. He said, and I quote, Deprived of the support of the Roman Empire, the papacy became a possession of the great Roman families, the aristocracy. They took over the papacy. A ticket to local dominance for which men, this was a very powerful office. So they were prepared to rape, murder, and steal the office of pope. Carried a lot of weight, a lot of riches, and so on. It led to a lot of corruption, okay? A third of the popes elected between 872 and 1012 A.D. died in suspicious circumstances. Dave Hunt says uh, in his book, there was not a few popes caught in bed with another man's wife. He said they were some of the most immoral monsters that ever walked the face of the earth. Uh, it's amazing. But um, a third of the popes elected between 872 and 1012 died in suspicious circumstances. John VIII was bludgeoned to death by his entourage. Stephen VI was strangled. Leo V was murdered by his successor, Sergius III. John X was suffocated. Stephen VIII was horribly mutilated. A fate shared by the Greek antipope, John XVI, who unfortunately for him didn't die from the removal of his eyes, nose, lips, tongue, and hands. Most of these men were maneuvered into power by a succession of powerful Roman families. The Theophilix, the uh, Crescenti, uh, the Tusculani. Sounds like a bunch of mafia families. John X, one of the few popes of his period to make a stand against the, uh, the aristocratic dominion, was deposed and murdered in the castle of San Angelo by one group, the very group that had appointed him in the first place. I mean, that's how the history goes, MacArthur said. I think probably the papacy is the biggest hoax foisted upon the world in the name of Christianity. As J.C. Riles said, a gigantic system of church worship, Sacrament worship, Mary worship, saint worship, image worship, relic worship, priest worship, and pope worship. A huge organized idolatry. MacArthur says that's what it is, and that's what you have to see it as. A man wearing a gold crown, triple decked with jewels worth millions. The cardinal's garb is worth tens of thousands of dollars. What a contrast to Acts 3, verse 6, where Peter said, silver and gold, I have none. The Pope is surrounded by this dazzling display of arrogant overindulgence. It is a theater and nothing more to give the illusion of transcendence, the illusion of holiness, the illusion of spirituality, all of this pompous display of wealth and lavish indulgence and ridiculous buildings and robes and crowns and thrones covered uh, a, a sinful system. It seduces. It's satanic. The true church has nothing to do with it, end quote. I fully agree with that. Look, I love Roman Catholics. My wife and I were raised in the Roman Catholic Church. We got married in the Catholic Church. I love Roman Catholics. I hate Roman Catholicism. It is a false religious system that traces its roots back to ancient Babylon. You can read Revelation 17 again. Mystery Babylon. That's talking about the final corrupt world church and i believe roman catholic church will not be alone they're going to be the head of it though it will include other faiths but i believe the roman catholic church will spearhead this and i believe the false prophet could be uh, a pope the the antichrist is the leader of the world government and i believe a pope could be the false prophet who will lead the charge of this one world religion again not 
only Roman Catholics, but the Roman Catholic Church will be spearheading this. And we don't have time tonight, but I've done a study where I have quoted the Roman Catholic Church and how they have been working ever since the days of John Paul II to bring the world religions together. I'm not just talking about uh, Catholics and Protestants. I'm talking about Mormons. I'm talking about Sikhs. I'm talking about uh, Native American shamans uh, and all. I, the whole They want to get the whole world under the umbrella of Rome. Guys, I think Peter was a great man. I know he loved the Lord with all his heart. He was a wonderful Christian. He was a, a, an incredible elder, but he was not the Pope. And if Peter ever knew, Peter and Mary, if Mary knew what the church had done to her, even as it's done to Peter, exalt these two, uh, worship these two, basically, I know they'd both be mortified. Mary was a godly woman. Peter was a godly man. What the church, Roman Catholic Church has turned these two into is an abomination. Anyways, next week, God willing, unless I find something else to dwell on, we will finish the epistle of 1 Peter and, God willing, begin 2 Peter the week after. Lord, we've covered a lot of territory and obviously not very um, uplifting territory. But sometimes, Lord, we just need to focus on the facts wherever they lead us. Church history is important especially the errors, so that we don't fall into the trap of repeating them. But we thank you, Lord, for godly men like Peter, godly women like Mary. But Lord, give us grace that we realize that, you know, we are not to exalt any man or woman. We are only to exalt our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of his church. And so, Lord, we thank you. You're the good shepherd. You're the great shepherd. You're the chief shepherd. Thank you, Lord. We couldn't have asked for a more wonderful shepherd to lead our lives than you. We just praise you, Lord, and ask you to bless our next week's study as we finish this incredible epistle. We ask it all in your precious name. Amen. Amen.